Welcome to the True Story London podcast. I'm Michelle Toth. In this podcast, we listen to a true personal story told live at one of our shows in London, followed by a conversation with the storyteller about their background, process, story themes, and more. Today's storyteller for our very first episode is Dahlia Cohen. I remember when Dahlia told this story for the first time back at the very, very first True Story show in London. Everyone was blown away by it because it's so moving and funny and insightful and really important. So I can't wait to share it with you and talk to Dahlia afterward. So first, let's listen to the story recorded live at 21 Soho. sat down to have my blood drawn. Another pregnancy test. Not an, oh my God, I'm 21. I smiled at a guy and I'm just confirming I'm pregnant kind of test. More like a, I'm in my 40s and after six years of IVF, acupuncture, prayers, and a lot of folic acid, I'm hoping to find out that I'm finally pregnant. I believe the universe to be a benevolent place and an ally. Over to you, I said silently. I've done my part. My part consisted of two weeks on the conveyor belt of um, blood tests, medications, and internal probes. So it wasn't all bad. I felt like a covert operative. I'd wake up, and before it was light, I'd go to the clinic to get my tests. Then I'd wait to get a call sometime in the day detailing my mission the medications, the injections to be administered with the very large needles I'd smuggled past security, and what time to report back to headquarters. Information was shared with civilians on a need-to-know basis. This was the olden days where people went to offices. In the office, you don't talk about anything personal. You talk about the weather or who stole your food from the fridge. Pumped full of hormones, I tried to maintain my focus and my temper with mixed results. I'd been robbed of sleep, alcohol, exercise, and sex. My acupuncturist had also banned gluten, dairy, sugar, and caffeine. Teeming full of hormones with no sleep or caffeine, I was supposed to work. I was told the worst thing for this process is stress. Yet, I had no outlet. And there was no emotional eating, because who does that on steamed broccoli? I ended up seeing eight different doctors at different stages and different cycles. They all had very clear views on the science, yet they were all very different. Each of them grilled me about my medical history, my habits, my lifestyle. Only one of them asked the same questions of my partner, Andrew. Yet it takes two parts to make an embryo? Back to the test. I received a call at work later that day to let me know that the result was the same result I had received six times previously. It was negative. There would be no pregnancy. In that moment, I fully realized that I might never have my own children. Failing anything is hard for an ambitious, competitive control freak. But this? Women with fewer resources who do not work out or eat chia seeds manage to have children. Not a single fucking fairy tale I'd been told growing up said, and she lived happily ever after, after she had mortgaged herself to get enough therapy to bridge the gap between expectations and, well, life. I decided to get out of my head, and I agreed to go to a charity event that evening. I dressed up. I looked fabulous. 
Not only was it my camouflage, but I realized that the universe was not in fact on my side, and it was my way of smack-talking the universe. You think you've won. You think you've got the better of me. Look at me now. Well, it turns out the universe has a sick sense of humor and an advanced sense of irony, which leads me to believe that the universe is in fact British. <laughs> this is evidenced by several unknowing comments I got that evening. One friend to me said, why don't you just quit work and have babies? Another friend said, you would make an incredible mother. And a new friend asked me if I had kids. And when I told her I didn't, she said, I recently met someone else who also chose not to have children. Screw the confidentiality of the mission. I went full WikiLeaks and started telling everyone my story. This was liberating. Here is an incomplete list of things not to say when someone tells you they're having a long journey towards trying to have children. Have you considered IVF or adoption? You were always so focused on your career. Don't think about it. That's when it works out. And my personal favorite, you should get a puppy. It's like having a child. <laughs> what I also discovered was how many people also have stories about miscarriages, losses, struggles, and journeys, and that no one really talks about it. And if it touches any nerve with anyone in the room, from my heart, I am sorry, and I hope that talking about it helps bring some empathy and compassion because there is often a silent shame of falling short of the expectations of wanting, having, or not having children and the timing of their arrival. And there is also grief, but it's often not acknowledged because it's, it's not tangible. You see, no one got to meet the person I never got to have, yet there is still profound loss. I decided to move on. I, I, I kept going. I, I lived my life. But the universe was not done taunting me. I got a call from the infertility clinic to ask me if I would like to continue to store or destroy my remaining embryos. I decided to endure another cycle because the pain of failing would not compare to the regret of not doing everything I could while I still could. And that is why the infertility business is so profitable. This time I surrendered to the universe. I told the doctor no hormones, just implant the embryo on the right day of my cycle. I drank wine, and I ate gluten. I had lattes, that's caffeine and dairy. <laughs> and I made a pact that I would have a meaningful life no matter what the impact and the outcome. Following another two-week process, I got signs of getting my period. Faced with the certainty that I would now be childless forever, I traveled to get my blood tests, knowing it would be the saddest day of my life, and that I was going to have to metabolize a whole lot of grief to get to the other side. Because of the state I was in when I arrived at the clinic, they um, asked me if I would wait in a private room. In the UK, they actually get the result while you wait, which is immeasurably kind. It still felt like an interminable amount of time. And when the nurse came in, she told me that she had run the test twice so that I would accept the final result. Nine months later, we welcomed a perfect little girl. Dahlia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
I love this story so much. It was such a highlight of the very, very first True Story show we did back in 2019. Do you remember? Cannot believe it's that long ago. I know you put so much work and thought into crafting this story. It's so evident. It's such a brilliantly structured and delivered story. So I wonder if we could start by just talking about your process. Like, how did you think about pulling it together? What was it like for you when you were actually crafting it? I told the story because we were thinking about various stories, and this was the one that triggered me most. And it had most of a charge to it. And then I sat down and wrote through six years of IVF. And that was a very, very long story. Yeah. And the process of getting six years down into five minutes made me really, really stop and think about what did I want to say? What was really important? What were the things I really felt deeply about? As well as how to structure it. I didn't want it to be a story of I did IVF and I had a great result because that clearly was the narrative of it. But the background and the experiences and the revelations were so much more important to me. And there were things about it that I really felt I wanted to say, mainly because in going through it, I was at an age and it was more of a time where you couldn't really talk about a lot of this. And so it was very cathartic to be able to get it all out. I know it was impactful to so many people who either share your experience or were going through it at the time. Mm-hmm. So, and, and you knew that and you mm-hmm. acknowledged that in your story, which I thought was so, so generous and so compassionate. How is Ella? Ella is fantastic. Um, I'll try not to talk for too long about Ella. She is feisty. She is fearless. She is my greatest teacher. And there are all the ups and downs that come with being a parent. And I feel incredibly grateful. She's a lot of fun. And in this context, she's also um, incredibly verbal and has been writing some of her own stories. Oh, excellent. So I look forward to... um, (laughs) The next generation. The next generation of True Story. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So Dahlia, you mentioned that you were in your 40s when you were going through all this IVF. Yeah. So you are an older mom. Yes. How is that compared to some of the other moms you might meet? There are positives and negatives for sure about being an older mom, and I'm sure there are positives and negatives for being a, a younger mom. Um, the positives are you do or should know who you are more, more settled, more established, have a better sense of self, more to offer. I'll tell you the negatives are I don't react as well to caffeine and alcohol anymore, and I'm going through menopause. And so to deal with all of that <laughs> while you have a five-year-old – when at the end of the day, I just might want a glass of wine, and that's just not going to work well for anyone, is definitely a negative. It's it's interesting being out of sync with my age group of friends who have had kids. They're talking about being empty nesters, and on days where Ella has been exuberantly exploring her boundaries. Um, <laughs> that's a way to say it. <laughs> I am extremely jealous. But also, she keeps me young. And she reminds me, as I am older and more cynical and jaded, she reminds me about joy because she approaches everything with a sense of curiosity and excitement and joy from the most mundane to the bigger experiences. And um, it's incredibly important and refreshing. Another couple of things that I loved about your story was the way that you used the universe as a character. That came to be because when I had gone through one of my cycles, 
I'd had a lot of moments following it where people just came saying, saying things to me that I didn't understand or, or couldn't believe, like, you can't make this shit up moments. I sat down and wrote it all out. And that came out then. And I, when I went back and read my notes when I was writing the story, that popped out of me, as well as the fact that I surrendered to the universe in the very end. And I felt like that was a nice symmetry and a thread that pretty much had run through. And so I picked up the humor of my writing, which was my way of keeping me sane as well as sort of the, the surrender at the end, which was essential for my mental health. Was it at all funny when you were going through it, or was it only in reflection that you could find the humor? Depended on the day. There was one, one day where I had um, I'd failed IVF, and it was the day before Mother's Day. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take care of myself. So I went to the grocery store, and um, the checkout lady said, Happy Mother's Day. And I looked at her thinking, you can't make this up. And then I called a friend and said, I'm getting out of the city because I can't take all the well wishes. I'm getting on a train. There was a man in my car on the train who stood up and said, Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Oh, my gosh. And those were moments where I was just completely being punched in the stomach but could weirdly see the humor in it because it's just absurd. Yeah. And so I, th I think it's a little bit of both. So did you know before you started IVF what the process entailed? I mean, it's so complex and it's medically so difficult what you were describing with all the medicines and the needles and the processes. Is this something you were aware of before you started? Not fully. I had a sense of it. And in many ways, it's complex and it's not. You get very clear instructions. So you get told what to do. And I did feel a little bit like I was on a conveyor belt, you know, like a probe, blood test, shots, a probe of blood test shots. And that became very routine. And it felt like in many cases, you were just another number on the conveyor belt. It was very impersonal. And also, it was weirdly a fascinating science experiment. Like it was really cool to see whether eggs were developing or, or embryos were developing or not, or how many eggs you were getting before the harvest. And so I sort of I weirdly loved the science of it, which was a bit of an out-of-body experience, which depersonalized it for me. Um, and was I'm that also a helpful very, distraction? It was. I'm also very competitive. So I liked, <laughs> I liked watching to see how my numbers were doing. <laughs> A little bit of everything. Um, it was a helpful distraction. Yeah. And that little competitive edge that you described yeah. where you were like trying so hard mm -hmm. and yet women who were perhaps trying less hard or didn't have to try mm -hmm. were able to conceive and you weren't like I, that little edge of competitiveness kind of wove itself into your story. Oh, for sure. And that was very hard for me because I've always worked hard and worked hard to get what I wanted. And as hard as I was working here... I wasn't getting results, the results that I wanted. Even though my numbers were good, I kept being told I had the biology of a 30-year-old, and I was just like, okay, <laughs> but where are the results? And that competitiveness ended up imprisoning me in a, while, in a way, which I talk about too, because the, the doctors all had different views, and one of them was like, you know, don't eat dairy, don't have gluten, don't have this, don't have that. And so I was walking through life just imprisoned and scared of, I had a sip of milk, have I ruined my chances? What oh, have wow. I done to myself? And so it was very difficult. And uh, imprisoning is the word the word I would use. It was sure. very difficult. And you raised such an interesting point around how you are the vessel and therefore the one who's enduring all of the intervention to mm. become pregnant. Mm -hmm. And yet the lack of questions, the lack of inquiry for your partner. Tell us a little bit more about that. 
So I went to, and during the process, I ended up seeing about eight different doctors and they would all interview me about my health and my lifestyle and my supplements and what I was doing. And only one out of the eight asked my then partner, now husband, Andrew, the same questions. And I felt a little bit like I was still in the era of Henry VIII, where the woman is completely responsible and to blame for the production or non-production of children because it takes two parts to make an embryo. And so the health of his sperm should be as important as the health of my egg because we had established that I could carry a child. So so it was a hospitable environment. Sounds so clinical. (laughs) Right. Well, that's the whole thing, right? This is such a personal thing and it's so emotional. And yet the whole process was so clinical and that was part of what I was hoping to get across in the story. But yeah, I was really enraged. And Dahlia, in your story, you have that brilliant line about how not a single fucking fairy tale prepared you for this, which sort of speaks to the idea that women have still such expectations of what we will do, what we will produce, Mm -hmm. how we will perform, including as mothers. It sounds really hard. Yeah, no, that line was one of my most heartfelt lines for sure, because society has expectations and I had expectations that I would live largely the same, take largely the same journey as my mother. And so I expected to get married in my 20s, have kids by my 30s, and so on and so on. And life doesn't work out exactly as planned. And that's okay. But I didn't know that at the time. And so I had many stressful years wondering why I hadn't had kids by that time. And funnily enough, I still think about not necessarily that line, but what society does, because Ella is very interested in fairy tales and stories and um, is going through a moment where she's interested in Cinderella or Moana or Frozen or whatever it is. But but there's a lot of love story fairy tales in there. And I want to scream at her, you make you happy. You don't need a man to save you. You don't have to get married and live happily ever after. There are so many different ways. And it's very hard to find the balance between letting her be part of society and, and trying to protect her from, from expectations that may not serve her. My expectations didn't serve me. And if I had let them go, maybe I would have had an easier path. How do you think it would have been easier? I would have possibly surrendered a little sooner and been more in the present. Mm. I feel like I've leaned through the present a lot towards a future that I'd hoped would happen the way it would happen. And um, I just think I would have been able to enjoy the present and not wonder if I was ever going to have children. I spent a lot of time thinking about, I've, I've always wanted to be a mother, um, if that was going to happen for me, because what I came to believe truly by the last cycle was that I could have a meaningful and fulfilling life no matter what. And um, I wish I'd got there sooner. Yeah. It would be more relaxing. This is one of the many things you and I have in common, where mm. we are so active in our desire to create the future we want. It sort of looks a lot like control. <laughs> Manifested. Well, you, we can call it manifested yeah. if we want, but it's it's to be fair mm-hmm. and accurate with both of us. I mm-hmm. think it looks a little bit more like control. Yes, I, I no, could, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. And it was just interesting to hear you say a moment ago that you sort of wished you had surrendered. I think that is a really key part of your story and is a key yes. part of your life. Like once you start surrendering and letting things happen, they happen beautifully. That's what I'm getting that you wish you'd had more of and sooner. No, that's absolutely true. I was actually just... Um, ironically, at a wedding. And the person who's getting married, her grandfather had been a poet. And he's he wrote one of my favorite lines. His name's Chaim Plaptik, which is, expect no more. This is happiness. And I think that's a great philosophy to live by. That's beautiful. So Dahlia, the degree of insensitivity that you describe in your story is stunning. What are people thinking when they say and ask some of the things they do? 
Well, this is a pet hobby of mine, which is wondering where I'm being horrifying without realizing it, because I think we all do it in areas where we're not so sensitive. And I would find this, again, this was another place where I was both punched in the stomach, yet weirdly seeing the humor of it, because I have a really good brain and it's really quite scientific. So the fact that I would share with people that I was going, you know, wanted to have kids and they would suggest to me all these possible ways of having kids. And I said, they're thinking, do you not think I've not thought through absolutely every single result? (laughs) And so the unsolicited advice just, or, or, or the comments were not helpful. And so it was sort of an out of body experience to like watch these weird comments come back. And like getting a puppy yeah. or, oh, that's so interesting. We have another friend who also chose not to have kids and the assumptions. And I've always been very engaged with my career. And so a lot of the assumptions were you're charging hard at your career. Of course you haven't yeah. you know, made time for this. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. And in some ways was helpful because it helped me stop. I'd been very private about it. I tend to be quite private and I hadn't really shared what I was going through. And I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to tell people because it is, it's now a huge part of who I am. It's given me a huge amount of empathy. I was wondering when you said that about work being a place where you don't talk about anything. And mm-hmm. I was wondering if it might be the industry you were in at the time, because I, I think it varies. I think it's both. It was absolutely the industry. I was in um, a group where they were worried about the younger woman getting pregnant because then we'd be shorter staff. So I'm fielding those comments. And the other is I wasn't confident enough in myself to say, this is what I'm going through. This is the support I need. And here in the future, I would tell my younger self to do that, even at the risk of it impacting my job, because it really wasn't good for my health or my mental health. That's what I was going through. I was in a job where I had to travel for work and they would set up meetings and I would know I was going through a process and I'd have to do somersaults to find a reason why I wouldn't be able to go and visit the large client. And that would cause so much stress, which is not helpful to work, not helpful to the process, not helpful to my mental health. And it was incredibly difficult. And in retrospect, I would like both the industry and people to be in a place where this is something that can be spoken of without fear of it impacting their career or their standing Yeah. And I think it is changing for the better in terms of more awareness of what families, but especially mothers need. And I I have always thought it was critical that as men started to become more involved in families, it started to become easier to get attention on an issue that women have been facing forever. That's definitely true. And as I say in the story, I went all WikiLeaks on my story. I started telling a lot of my guy friends what I was going through. And I got some of the greatest reactions from them um, very frequently. Most of the time when I told a story, someone came back to me and told me their stories. So I told a particular friend who I thought had the, the perfect family who immediately turned around and said to me, we had several miscarriages. And another friend who just sat there teared up and said, I guess that's just not your path, but that's really, really painful which was so much better than someone saying, have you thought about IVF? Would you ever adopt, mm-hmm. you know, get a dog or what, you know, all the other things people were saying, but to just sit there and hold space for me. When people shared their own stories, I felt less alone. Mm. I felt I, I'd given myself permission to share, but it felt good about sharing. I felt like people were seeing the full person because this was a big part of what I was going through. So it was important for me. But when someone starts to cry and says, that must be really hard, you feel seen and you feel like someone is standing next to you in the process and not questioning it and judging it, but just standing by your side and supporting you. And, mm-hmm. and that feels, um, feels like a big hug. 
So Dahlia, one of my other favorite lines in the story is where you articulated so sensitively the particular sense of loss Mm -hmm. when you haven't had the Mm -hmm. baby you wanted to have. And I think the line was, no one got to meet the person I never had. It was still such a profound loss. It's a very heavy thing because in failing a cycle, you have all these hopes and expectations. And in that not coming to fruition, you were then childless, not by choice. Mm -hmm. And it's deeply upsetting to imagine a life in that moment where you may not have children. Now, there are lots of ways to have children, but there is a profound sense of loss. But because it's really not tangible it's much more easily dismissed. And I imagine the same happens with miscarriages. Because there's no tangible physical being that people don't see, think they don't realize how deep your sorrow is and your loss. And it gets brushed over. I remember uh, an event I was at where a friend of mine had said to me, oh, you must absolutely have children. It's the best thing ever. Get on it now. You're getting older. And I, I said to her, um, I just failed an IVF yesterday. Oh, and she was like, oh, you can try again. And just, just oh brushed over it and went on. And I hadn't moved on yet. I was still in that moment just processing it and metabolizing it in the way that I needed to before I could move on. Right. In, the, in those years, I was envious of women who knew they didn't want to have children. Mm. They could get on with their lives. <laughs> mm. I also yeah. didn't know what was on the other side. So I was also nervous to have children. When I first found out I was pregnant with Ella, it took me a moment to process that because for six years I'd been putting in place the bricks of a wall that would shield me and I'd convinced myself I would have a perfectly good life without. Mm. And I did believe it and I do believe that's true, but I'd been self-protecting so strongly that I wasn't expecting to have to bash down that wall to live the life that was now presented, which was the life that I had wanted. And so oh yeah, that was a really weird moment. <laughs> so Dahlia, you described needing to do everything in your power to try to have the family that you wanted. And then you added in this little element, this insight that really struck me as that's why the infertility business is so profitable. Yeah, Those two ideas crashing against each other are maddening. Yeah, they are. Um, I've always wanted to have a child. That's where I was. And so I was going through all this IVF and it became clear at some point that this may actually not work out. And there were some very brutal moments where I had that realization. And I did the last round because, well, there was a couple of things going on. I'd gone through a lot of IVF and I'm sort of interested that the doctors never said to me, stop trying. And so there was always hope. And I didn't want to be a woman in my 60s and going, I didn't do everything I could because at that point, at the, by the end, I needed the relationship with myself. I needed to make my peace that I'd done everything I could so that I could live my life fully without regret. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of a very clear decision. And yet you were looking for something completely priceless, which is children and an experience and a journey. And I'm amazed at how expensive the price tag of that is. And it is out of reach for so many, especially if you don't have health coverage, especially if you're not at a company where it's covered. And I think there's something really incongruous about that. There's something really human and beautiful about wanting children, and it shouldn't be accessible only to the people who can afford it, because that's a little self-selecting and weird. It also just felt like you can really push the prices because people will do anything Mm -hmm. to get something they want 
that badly because you can't put a price tag on that. So people do, and it's very high. That was upsetting. Yeah. And remains upsetting. uh, Absolutely. It's capitalism gone Mm -hmm. awry. The actual process of giving birth um, in the UK was totally free, done on the NHS, and the level of support that I got was was breathtaking. To the extent that the post-delivery care, people come to your house and check the baby there. You don't actually have to get out of your pajamas. They realize you're a new mother and they show up at your house. And the healthcare worker comes to the house. I think they want to look at the environment to check it's okay for a kid, which is available to everyone. And they had a chat to me about my mental health and then spoke to Andrew, my husband, about the change for him and that if he suffered his level of postpartum depression, that there were people for him to talk to too. Oh my gosh, this is so uplifting. (laughs) So I was absolutely amazed in the positive by how fantastic the process was in the UK. I'm so glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. You're teaching me something I didn't know. I'm not too surprised my own experience of healthcare in general in the UK has been such a stark contrast to home. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really surprise me. But those extra elements that you're describing, especially around mental health, that is a positive sign. Really mm-hmm. glad to hear it. Dahlia, thank you so much for sharing your story and for sharing some of the backstory and telling us more about this extraordinary journey that you've been on. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you about it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about today's story and conversation, see the show notes at truestorylondon.com. And if you like what we're doing and want to sponsor us, you can do that on our website too. The True Story London podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Toth. Our producer is Ellis Ballard. Our theme music is by C-Noise. Live recordings were provided by Laughing Around and recorded at 21 Soho. And just one more thing. Please subscribe and rate us at your favorite podcast platform. It really does help, especially since we're a new podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you for another episode soon.